turn to Matthew 12, and we'll pick up in verse number number 38. Warning, the sign read, road closed ahead. I had seen the sign and I read it, but my curiosity and a little bit of stubbornness as a teenage driver, for some reason, didn't believe it or just ignored it. After all, I had my first pickup truck. I had four-wheel drive. I had gas in my tank and nothing but time on my hands. So I went driving, and it was was one of these class four roads up in the Groton State Forest. And I knew where it would end up. I had looked on a map, and if it was passable, I I knew how to get home another way from there if it was too rough. So I I started down the road. I got a few hundred feet, and I didn't see anything unusual. So I, I kept driving. I said, oh, maybe that sign was obsolete. Maybe it was old. I got about a quarter mile into the woods, nothing, half a mile, a mile, and I kept driving and the road got narrower and narrower, but all was going well, so I kept on going. Well, about two miles in, that sign that I had read earlier began to mean something. It was like late spring, early summer, and they hadn't done any work to the road, and the spring runoff had washed a few ruts and ditches in, but no big deal, right? I had my own truck. Well, I got to a point where about 10 feet of the road, probably four or five feet deep, had washed away. And there was no way around, no way through. So I was forced to turn around, except I couldn't. Because at that point, the road was so narrow, and my truck was not small, so I couldn't do like one of these three-point or 10-point or 20-point turnarounds. All I could do was back up. So I had to back up for what seemed like hours it probably was not that long but it was probably a mile backing up i got really good at backing up in that little instance and uh i was thinking the whole time i should have should have just listened to the sign i should have listened to the sign it meant something up until this point in matthew we have seen jesus do many signs and that's going to come up in our text today and uh we've seen those as miracles and mighty works we usually use that one word miracle but interestingly enough there really isn't one word in the gospels that correlates with our word for miracle the three words that the new testament uses to describe what we call miracles are are signs wonders and powers or mighty works and of all those used the word sign is probably the most common Um, especially in the gospel of john a little side note that's kind of his favorite word for the works that jesus did One place early in the book, the story of Nicodemus in John 3, that word comes up. This man came to Jesus by night, John 3, verse 2 says, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had the right idea. The signs that Jesus was doing were significant. And even in that word significant, the word sign is in there, isn't it? They showed something. We have seen the signs as we've read them in the text. Healing, healing blindness, opening deaf ears, opening dumb mouths, restoring mobility to the paralyzed, healing blood disorders, cleansing leprosy, even raising a dead girl. In Matthew 12, all of this controversy that we've been looking at happening with the Pharisees, and now the scribes will come in today. It all began, if you remember back a few weeks, of healing a man on the Sabbath. And it 
continued, there was more controversy with Jesus casting out a demon, which caused the Pharisees to accuse Jesus of doing that by the power of Satan. So when we come to 30, verse 38, which is where we'll pick up today, it's interesting what these men ask. Let's read Matthew 12, 38. We'll just read down through 42 for now. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The scribes and Pharisees asked him for a sign, a sign to show them something, to point something out, to convince them. But as we continue reading along, we'll begin to realize that it doesn't seem that they were that interested in being convinced. They weren't really interested in paying attention to any sign at all. Signs always point to a greater reality. That little canyon in the dirt road that I came across was much more meaningful to me than the sign that I had read an hour earlier that said road closed. But the sign was still important and true and ignoring it caused me a lot of frustration. Well, the same is true with Jesus. The signs that he did, and even more so, the signs that he points to in this passage they are real and true and important, but they're not signs unto themselves. The miracles and wonders were not simply for the sake of wonders. They were showing something, but many seemingly willingly missed it. They ignored the signs, and by doing so, they missed the Jesus that the signs pointed to. So if you're following along in your outline, you'll see this. It's kind of our main idea for today. A sign always points beyond itself to something else. To see Jesus' signs but miss Jesus is to miss the greatest thing possible. Let's bow in prayer and we'll dive into this passage. Father, thank you for thank you for giving us this revelation in Scripture that that we can read about and know and see these these mighty works, these signs, these wonders done by our Lord Jesus. And I pray that we would not miss what they point to, and that you would help us to have that kind of righteous focus and, yes, be in awe and amazement at the signs, but more so awe and amazement and love and admiration for our Savior. Pray that you'd give us what we need from this text this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First section, we'll see something greater, something greater. The Pharisees, we've seen a lot of them in the last few chapters. They were religious leaders, and the scribes, which come into our text today, they were maybe the religious experts because they were experts in the law, in the Torah. And they come together here 
in this interaction with Jesus to make a challenge. Jesus has asserted himself up until this point to be something significant, someone special. Already in this chapter alone, he has said, if you remember, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He has said that he was greater than the temple. And he said that by his works, the kingdom of God has come. Those are remarkable claims, claims that in the minds of these scribes and Pharisees, they needed further proof. Now, they had seen signs, as we've already mentioned. So what were they looking for? They ask here for a sign from you. In another parallel passage, we read that they ask for a sign from heaven. They wanted specific proof that Jesus was who he said he was. Specific proof, not just that the miracles were happening. They couldn't deny that. Not just that demons were being cast out. They, they couldn't even deny that, although they accused him of doing it by the power of Satan. But they wanted proof that his claims to be God's promised one were legitimate. Now, in Mark and Luke's record of this same story, we see that they asked this question in order to test Jesus. That may be, it seems to be an indication that, again, they weren't looking at all to believe, to be convinced, but rather to disprove. And with all the evidence that, that we've already seen, and no doubt hundreds of more instances we, that we don't even know about had taken place, with all that evidence, we'd have to ask the question, well, what sign would they desire? And what any sign at all, would anything do the trick? Well, we can think about that and ponder on it, but if, as we read through the text, we find that it didn't really matter because Jesus quickly refuses to accommodate them. He says in verse number 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus, after hearing their request, he, he doesn't bow down to it. He doesn't toss them something little, some a little clue. He points them outside of that moment to something that's going to come. But it's interesting, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, was Jesus saying that they were evil and adulterous because they asked for a sign? I don't think so. Uh, after all, many times in the Old Testament, God gave signs to his people. He gave the sign of the fleece to Gideon. He gave the rainbow to Noah. He gave the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night to the Israelites leaving Egypt. He gave many wonders worked through prophets like Elijah and Elisha. So is it inherently wrong to desire something from God to confirm our faith? I don't think so. We receive these confirmations in prayers answered, in sicknesses removed, in people coming to know Christ. These are all signs that show us God is working. And there's nothing wrong with rejoicing to see the work of God and confirm his faithfulness and our faith. But that doesn't seem to be what this group was after. Their request was evil not just because of the request itself, but as Jesus had already stated back in verses 34 and 35, 
Their request was evil because their hearts were evil. Their intention was not to believe and have their faith strengthened. Their intention seems to be to increase their doubt and to have their hatred confirmed. Jesus says an adulterous, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The word adulterous isn't tied here to any scandal of of marital unfaithfulness, but rather it points to spiritual adultery. That is, like we'll read later in the book of Revelation, they had left their first love. By their response to Jesus, by their continual rejection of Jesus, it became apparent that their hearts were far from God. We won't go here, but you can jot it down and do some homework later. In the, in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, God called that prophet Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman. And that whole picture, that whole story was a picture of how Israel was unfaithful to her God, yet how God was still faithful to his people. And so this generation in sort of spiritual adultery held an appearance of faithfulness, but Jesus makes this judgment that they were instead evil and adulterous within. Christian, we can rejoice when God does something to confirm our faith. But we must be careful not to be in this kind of place where we demand a sign from God, where we take the stance of trying to disprove God by lack of signs. He doesn't owe us anything. And Jesus didn't owe these people anything, but he did offer them something. And what he offers them is pretty significant. He offers them the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, no sign will be given, verse 39, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The story of Jonah, as we know it, is is an amazing story. It was one that was a testimony to the Jewish people of God's deliverance. Most of the references to Jonah's story in Jewish writings around Jesus' time, they don't say much about Jonah's preaching or about Nineveh's repentance, but they do say a lot about how Jonah's time in the belly of the fish shows God's deliverance of his people. So when Jesus said the the sign of the prophet Jonah, the thought would have been immediately to that part of the story, how Jonah was in the belly of the fish. For three days and being delivered from that. Jesus takes that part of the story and he gives them a sign. He says in verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, a little bit of a sidebar here. It's a question that comes up often, and it's maybe a good time to talk about it a little bit. The verbiage here is three days and three nights. That's the prediction. And of course, Jesus is predicting his own burial there. But we often think, well, was it three days and three nights? Traditionally, we celebrate Good Friday on Friday and Easter on Sunday, which it's hard to add up three days and three nights. And the question is always, well, well, which is it? Is it three days and three nights? Is it three days? What is it? 
Well, in Jewish language and counting in that day, it was normal to count any part of the day and call it a day. So the saying three days and three nights referred to three different calendar days, not necessarily 72 hours. This has been controversial over the years. It doesn't really need to be, but it has been, because this is referring, again, to Jesus' resurrection, in which he was in the grave, not for 72 complete hours, but definitely on three calendar days. And these conundrums kind of come up when we seek to apply our kind of modern and Western standards to ancient Mideastern language. But a couple examples show us how the term was used interchangeably, even just in the book of Matthew. For instance, in Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, on the third day, be raised. Then in another place, Matthew 27, 63, it says, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, speaking of Jesus in a negative sense, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. So we have three phrases in the book of Matthew that in our ears say different things, but clearly are intended to convey the same thing. Three days and three nights, after three days, and on the third day were synonymous to be referring to simply three calendar days. So we think of that, without that out of the way, Jesus is saying, just as Jonah was in that belly of the fish for that span over three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. Now, he doesn't explicitly say the word resurrection here, but remember what the people were thinking of. They were thinking of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish, for three days, and then he wasn't. He was delivered. So while he doesn't explicitly say resurrection, it is implied so clearly that to miss it would be difficult. Jonah was in the fish, and then he came out of the fish. Jesus would be in the grave, and then he would not be. He would be delivered as well. The sign would be the sign of the resurrection. And Jonah's story, we now see, exists in part to point forward to Jesus. I mentioned that most of the writings about Jonah in this time period had to do with his time in the fish, not necessarily his message. But Jesus brings that in as well. Jesus brings in that part of Jonah's story as a testimony. Because Jonah wasn't just delivered from the deep. He went on after that to preach in Nineveh. And something amazing happened. The whole city repented. Much like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, which Jesus has said would have repented if they had seen the mighty works that Jesus had done. Nineveh, in fact, did repent. And they saw much less than the people of Jesus' day had seen. In fact, the primary thing, the primary means of Nineveh's repentance was Jonah's simple message. He said 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. No miracles done, no healings, no casting out demons. Similarly, Jesus' message of repent for the kingdom is at hand was the main thing. The signs were simply signs. 
Now, if we read on in verse number 42, we find that Jesus brings in another example. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south, as we read it here, is referring to the queen of Sheba. And you may or may not be familiar with that story, but we read about her in 1 Kings chapter 10. A few snippets here. 1 Kings 10 verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba had heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. This story is fascinating to me. It always has been. Solomon was a great man and a great king. Scripture says he was the wisest man who ever lived, of course, except Jesus Christ. But this this Gentile queen, the queen of Sheba, uh, most likely ties back to the, the Sabaean people. She came to hear about his fame, and she made the journey. And it's interesting because that verse ties his fame with the name of the Lord, with the name of Yahweh. Solomon's fame then was a sign to this majestic woman. And Jesus notes in verse 42 of our passage that she came from the ends of the earth, from a long distance, and she did travel. A lot of scholars estimate 1,500 miles or more she traveled, and she was a queen of a very wealthy people, so there would have been a large entourage with all the provisions and gifts and and many things for that journey. She came, as we read a little bit later in 1 Kings 10, she was driven to admiration and even worship. She said to the king, verse 6 in 1 Kings 10, the report was true that I heard in my land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And then watch what she says. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. What an amazing story. This was a a Gentile, as far as we know, pagan queen who had heard about Solomon's fame and traveled thousands of miles or more to see him. And the result was worship toward the Lord. At least it seems that way. Blessed be the name of the Lord your God. The scribes and Pharisees in our text They didn't have to travel at all. They expended no effort, relatively speaking, to see Jesus and to see his signs. They didn't have to bring their luggage, their their food. They didn't have to organize lodging. They didn't even have to leave their own cities and villages. Yet, having seen the greatness, they did not believe. Now, in both of these stories about about the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. The repentant and worshipful ones were not part of Israel. I think Jesus used those examples as a bit of an indictment. 
And he does make it an indictment because in both cases, he said they will rise up at the judgment and condemn it. That would have been unthinkable to these scribes and Pharisees that their actions, their stubbornness, their disbelief would be condemned by the city of Ninevites who had tormented Israel and the queen of Sheba, who was a a pagan, unbelieving queen. Yet that's exactly what Jesus said because they repented and the queen of Sheba, she believed. And in both cases, Jesus says something greater is here. One greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon was in their midst, right there. A greater one is here. This is the simple way it would be translated. A greater than Jonah, a greater than Solomon. It's a person, a greater prophet, a, a greater king is here. Both of the stories were great, but Jesus said they pointed forward to their greater reality. Jesus is the greater Jonah who completely obeyed his father. Jesus is the greater Solomon who had all wisdom but never used that greatness for evil. We could go on. Jesus is the greater David who is king forever and has never failed or sinned. Jesus is the greater Moses, the the true intercessor and deliverer of his people. Jesus is the greater temple, the place, or rather the person where men forever come to meet God and the only way to the Father. Jesus is the greater Sabbath, the only one in which we find true rest. That is who the Pharisees and scribes were missing out on. And that is who we miss out on if we see the signs but ignore Jesus. He is something greater than any of those things. We see something greater. But then Jesus uses a little illustration, and we turn then to something worse. I'm just going to read verse 43 to 45, and then we'll talk about it a bit. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, verse 45, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this generation. Now, I will admit this section is a little bit cryptic. And I mean by that that its, its meaning is not immediately apparent, perhaps for us. And part of that difficulty is that while the Bible clearly acknowledges that, that evil spirits, demons are real, and we see Jesus has been casting them out, we don't really have a whole lot of information about how they work, where they are, what they do. We sort of just see them in a cross section where Jesus interacts with them. We don't really know how common they are, how they operate. So when we read or hear stories about Jesus casting out demons, we we have to believe they're real, 
but we're a little bit clueless as to the totality of their importance. But Jesus' audience seemed to be a little more familiar with their existence. After all, we've seen already several cases where he has delivered a person from a demon or, in, in one case, a whole multitude of demons. Were they more prevalent in that day? It's hard to say. I don't know why they would have been. But with our limited understanding, we can glean something from these words. Now, remember, Jesus had just cast out a demon not long before they had that probably in their minds still, and he's not necessarily referring to that person, but he's using the action as, or using the idea as an illustration. And here he seems to be speaking in verse 43 of an unclean spirit or an evil spirit that goes out of a person voluntarily. And it says it goes out seeking rest. What does an evil spirit seek rest from? That's a question I don't really know from whatever evil spirits do, I guess. And it says it goes into the waterless or the dry places seeking rest. Well, what is a waterless place? Well, the most basic understanding of that is the desert. Why the desert? Well, the desert seems to be imagery of, of lack of blessing, of lack of God's presence and provision. There are a couple passages, for instance, in Isaiah that seem to indicate the desert as this kind of place of uncleanness. Also, we have an example from Jesus' own life where he goes into the wilderness, which was a desert place, and there he was tempted by the devil himself. So maybe there's some connection in the mind of Jesus' audience there from the desert and this sort of emptiness and evil spirit. But let's start to compile the imagery. The demon here is seen as restless. He needs to find rest. And he goes into the empty wasteland to find that rest. But he doesn't find it there. So keep those images in mind. Emptiness, restlessness, the desert. Well, then Jesus describes the man that he leaves. Because he describes him here, when the demon comes back, he finds the man empty, swept, and put in order. Now, initially, that sounds good. It's interesting, this language. The demon comes back, and he calls it his house. Um, that's that's a, a frightful thought in itself. But he finds his house, this man, swept and put in order. So it sounds like there's been a real improvement, a real uh, maybe reform there in this person's life. But notice that the demon also finds it empty. That is, the place that the spirit would occupy remained empty while the man experienced some kind of moral reform. It was swept and in order, but it was empty. It seems that Jesus is giving a picture because he ties this image to that generation. So he's not saying that this is a story about one person, but about the generation, the, the scribes and Pharisees specifically. And he gives this image of something that is swept and put in order, but still empty. And in this story, verse 45 says that the empty person is rife 
for the works of evil because the spirit finds this orderly and clean person who is empty and he goes and brings seven other demons with him that are worse than himself and they dwell there so that the last state of that person is worse than the first. A clean but empty generation. That's what Jesus is saying. So will it be with this generation. A clean but empty generation is an open target for evil to come in. Perhaps in the specific case, a clean but empty person is open to the temptations and the snares of the devil. A clean but empty person is an open target for Satan. A clean but empty generation is one that is susceptible to evil infiltration. Jesus says they would be worse than they were before. Again, he's referencing the scribes and Pharisees. He had just said about them, this evil generation, and he closes this little illustration with this evil generation. The scribes and Pharisees were morally clean. They were put together. You could say they were ordered and swept by the letter of the law. They were elite, they were noble, and they were upright. But tidiness and cleanliness, apart from the fullness that Christ brings, seems to be no better off. In the end, the the moral fortitude of the Pharisees wouldn't do them any good. In fact, Jesus says they would be worse off than they were before. And in their controversy with Jesus, we have been watching their downward spiral into spiritual ruin. Now, can we apply this to our day as well? I think we can. Individually, a person who is morally upright, but who doesn't have the spirit of Christ, the fullness of Christ, is still an empty person that is just as prone to these attacks of the devil as the worst person on death row. Now, that seems to be a sharp statement. But that's what Jesus has said. That person was worse off after their little period of cleanliness and and uprightness than they were before when they had the demon. We need not simply moral reform. Now, don't hear me. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that that moral living is is useless. Of course not. Uh, Our society is much better when there is morality in it. But morality by itself, especially in the individual, does not always equate with the fullness of God or his spirit dwelling within. We need the filling that only Christ can provide. Paul says in Romans 8 that you or us believers are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you and anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Believers and followers of Jesus now have this promise that the spirit of God dwells within us. That's part of our new birth, our regeneration. It's part of the fullness and peace and blessing that only comes through Christ. Now, does Christ want us to be righteous in our actions? Of course, but he wants us to be not simply swept and ordered and empty. He wants us to be righteous because we're filled with his fullness. That's what the Pharisees lacked. They had all the religion and morality in the world, literally, but none of God's fullness was within them. Now, we could broaden this out to society as well, because we could easily say that there have been periods of the history of society in which people were, were more moral than we are right now in terms of a Judeo-Christian understanding. In fact, as our nation, we have arguably that is our, our mooring and our foundation. So we could ask this question, what has happened? What has happened? Well, one answer is that a large part of the downfall of society is religion and morality without the fullness of God. A society that is morally upright but spiritually empty is still a society that is doomed for chaos, the kind of chaos that Jesus describes in that little parable. And that seems to be where we are. A generation that behaves itself but does so independent of God's spirit doesn't seem to bring any more glory to God than a riotous society because it's worse off eventually than it was to begin with. Morality alone is, is simply a constant balancing of doing right versus doing wrong. Morality without the filling of Christ is like plugging a hole in your boat with your thumb. It keeps the water out as long as your thumb is there. But as soon as you let off, you sink. And further than that, moral reform without the spirit often leads to at least complacency, but worse than that, arrogance and self-sufficiency. And isn't that exactly what we see in the scribes and Pharisees? They were so independently upright and moral in their minds that they missed their need of their Redeemer and Messiah, the greater one who was standing right in front of them and had given them all the signs they needed in the world. May we not miss Jesus by our uprightness. May we not miss him because we're able to keep himself clean. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, none of us could outperform the scribes and Pharisees in our religion or our morality. But the difference is we can be filled with God's fullness as we follow Jesus Christ, which is exactly what they were missing and rejecting. We are not in danger, Christians, I believe, of being overtaken by an evil spirit, but we may be in danger of developing a self-sufficient attitude, of disregarding the spirit of Christ within us. So may we ever be aware of that need 
of that restlessness without him. St. Augustine said famously, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That is absolutely the truth. May we be reminded of that. May we not find ourselves empty, but filled with the fullness that Christ provides. So something greater, something worse, and then finally, as we round out this passage, we see something wonderful. Jesus ends what we have is chapter 12 with another call to discipleship or to follow him. Uh, At the end of chapter 11, we heard the call, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, here the, the call is join my family, join my family. And this is a truly wonderful call. Let's read these verses, verse 46 uh, and following. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What a wonderful little passage. We often hear the phrase, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, that is partially true. It certainly is a religion. In fact, James calls it pure or true religion, which which doesn't neglect the widows and fatherless. But we understand the sentiment. It's, it's not merely a religion. That is, it's not simply belief and ritual. There is life and faith and following a person. And it is relational, as Jesus says here. Now, we begin by asking the question, why did Jesus' mother and his brothers need to speak to him? And we aren't told in this passage, but we're given some clues in the book of Mark. Mark 3, 21, this this is about the same period. It says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, or people were saying, he is out of his mind. So here's perhaps the scene. Jesus had, at this point, gone pretty far in this controversy with the scribes and Pharisees, which they were the upper echelon of Jewish society. And people saw this. Now, many believed and followed him, but some were saying, this guy is out of his mind. He's crazy. Now, were Jesus' mother and his brothers among that crowd that thought he had taken a bridge too far? Well, it doesn't say that specifically, but it at least says they went to get him. Whether they were trying to protect him or stop him or what, because of these accusations that Jesus has gone too far, his mother and his brothers went to seize him. Now, we are told that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him until after his resurrection. So perhaps for them, they may have thought that their half-brother was crazy. But either way, most likely Joseph was dead at this point, and Jesus, being the eldest son, would have been in charge of Mary's care. Were Jesus or were Mary and her other sons trying to rein him back into more family involvement? Did they think he had gone mad? Did, were they just trying to protect him? Either way, they, they wanted to speak to him, and he uses their request as a teaching moment that has a particular sweetness to us because 
being a blood relative of Jesus didn't guarantee entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, even Mary herself, in her song, after it was told to her that she would give birth to the Messiah, she rejoiced in God, her Savior. Even Mary needed a Savior. Now, was Jesus' statement here disrespectful? Who, who is my mother and who are my brothers? I don't think so, but I do think it was a statement of priority. Jesus didn't give the priority in this moment to his relatives. Further than that, he opened up the door of closeness and relationship to everyone. Who is the family of Jesus? Well, he gives the answer. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And we can quickly take from the teaching that we just read that simply obeying moral standards does not equate doing the will of the father. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have fit that mold. It's part of it, but it's not all of it. No, doing the will of the father also includes following his son, whom he sent as a Messiah and Redeemer. Doing the will of God is, is joyfully accepting what he sends forth. In his ministry, Jesus had no trouble reaching the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. When faced with their sin, they forsook it and they followed him. But the Pharisees, they held on to their own practice while forsaking God's son. That's the kind of spiritual adultery that Jesus referenced earlier. But do you see this invitation to be part of his family, to be part of God's family? I think of 1 John chapter 3, which says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what, will we, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We are God's children, and that is a wonderful display, John says there, of God's love that he showed in Jesus. Another similar concept, Paul says in Romans 8 again, same passage we read from earlier, that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And it goes further. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. We are adopted as sons and daughters, and we can rightfully call God our father, our Abba. And we are joint heirs with Christ, full members of God's family. Speaking of Jesus, Ephesians 2.18 says, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, speaking of Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God. This reminds us of Jesus talking about the Queen of Sheba. We've been brought from afar, and we've been brought into the household of God through Jesus. Finally, Hebrews 2 speaks to this. It says it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things existed in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, which is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children God has given me. All those familial ties. It reads on, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's speaking of Jesus coming to earth. That through death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those through who through fear of death were subject to slavery. For it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the children of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and high, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I admit, in that passage in Hebrews 10 or 2, there's a lot going on there. So go back and read it again. But think of the, the same themes that we see in this very passage. The power to deliver from evil. Uh, the fact of being brought into the family. Salvation and help. That is what we gain with Christ Jesus as our brother in the truest sense. And that is the tenderness of Christ. That's why we can't simply have morality or even religion without his spirit. It's why we can't miss his signs and ignore the word of God that points us so boldly to him. He calls us all who will do the will of his father, which includes believing in him, following him. And he calls us his family. Something greater than Jonah. Something greater than Solomon. Something greater than the temple, than the Sabbath is here. And it's Jesus. And he calls us into his family to follow him. May we not miss him as he calls. Lord Jesus, thank you for your call. Thank you for your clear teaching. I pray that we would see you, not just see the signs, not just even see the scriptures, but that we would see you in it, that we would heed your call. Thank you for making us members of your family, the household of God. May we cherish that and the blessing, and may we live as brothers and sisters now, part of that family, in the kind of righteousness that you've called us to. And may our lives be filled with you and your spirit. And we point others to you so that they can find the same.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.